Hey everybody, it's me, James Intracasso. Welcome to the Tome Show's coverage of Gen Con 2016. I am putting this generic beginning in front of all the panels we recorded live just to give you a heads up that we didn't have as much control over the recording environment as we normally do, so that means things like background noise, volume levels, and also explicit content uh, we did not have control over. So we just wanted to give you a heads up that there might be a few of those issues going forth, especially this explicit content. So if you're listening with younger ears or you're more sensitive, we just want you to be aware. And I'd also like to let you know that you should use the affiliate links at thetomeshow.com for Amazon or the DMs Guild whenever you shop on those places. Just click on the banners in the show notes for this episode or any other and then shop as you normally would. And I'd also like to thank our sponsor for this podcast, noblenight.com, their brick-and-mortar game store where out-of-print is available again. They have d and other tabletop RPGs, any edition, any product. With Noble Knight, you can even sell your old gaming products that you aren't using anymore. All right, we're going to hear a quick word from them, and then it's time to go to Gen Con. In an election year, gamers can be divided on almost every issue. Is it more important to support a small business or to have the convenience of buying your gaming products online? Do you play shiny new systems full of epic awesome or gritty older out-of-print games that make even the groggiest of nards quake with fear? In this economy, is it time to stock up on as many high-quality discounted gaming products as possible, or is it time to sell the old gaming products you aren't using anymore? We are divided on every important issue. So in 2016, you should support the store that lets you do it all. Noble Knight, a brick-and-mortar small business with a strong online presence that has new products and specializes in out-of-print, all at a price you'll love. And yes, they'll buy your old gaming products as well. Check out the incredible offerings at noblenight.com. Tell them the Tome Show sent you and help make gaming great again. I'm, I'm flying solo because we had somebody cancel us. It's not cool, but I am somewhat entertaining. Uh, but we're going to go until about 9.45-ish. Uh, I need to get your tickets if you're in now because if I don't get some tickets, they will stick me in a broom closet next year when I actually have a lot of people to talk to you. Um, I've seen some of these room processes, and he's not kidding. They are not. <laughs> I'm not. They're really <laughs> tiny. They're be like, oh, I see you only had about five people. Lovely. I'll give you a nook over by the uh, basement of the uh, of the Grand Central Ballroom across the way underneath where we used to have a speakeasy bar. <laughs> and if no one shows up for you then, then next year you just don't get a room. And if it's under a speakeasy, there's probably a secret hatch. But then nobody can ever find you ever, and then you get no tickets. Then, like, I'm sorry, your event got no tickets. You'll need to not submit that this year. No room for you. <laughs> You're in the short line room this year. Exactly. Uh, what are we on time? We're there. We're at nine. All right. <clears throat> I actually have some of a voice. If you've ever met me at one of the other cons, my name's Ben McFarland. Uh, most of the time, uh, by Saturday morning, I sound like Flo the Diner Waitress, who's had two packs a day. <laughs> no, sweetie, have the meatloaf. It's three days old. Stick to the blue plate special. Would you like a cup of coffee? That's really about what I have left at, that, at this point. So this year we're doing really well. Um, this panel, or as I like to call it, Ben talking this morning, is, uh, is combat-tastic, making a, a better game. Uh, we're going to probably, because it's just me and... I have a limited, you know, 
monologue that I can have with you this morning. I'd like to make it more of a discussion. So at a better point, we'll do a lot of questions, and hopefully we can make it kind of a, you know, a little bit of a 12-step. Yes, my name's Ben, and uh, I like my games to be much more gritty and angry. Um, so, but the big part with Combat Tastic, the idea here is that let's face it, um, with the exception of uh, a very few games, most of our games at some point over the course of the game are going to devolve into hitting things in the face with lumpy pieces of metal. Um, that's the way most of you know conflict resolution rolls in a lot of games. Yes, we have some political... Sure, I can get into a debate if I use, you know, dynasties and, dem, dynasties and demagogues. Yes, I could use Kertemen as wizards and, you know, we're going we're gonna to have a, a magical fencing match in Ars Magica. So, do I have one of the other six Ars Magica players in the world here with me? No? <laughs> you are. Look at that. See? Represent Ordo Hermes for life. And, uh, wow, man, that's a, I need to watch. Look at this, man. i got to mark the calendar. There's very few of us left in the wild. We're an endangered species. Um, you know, and I, you know, I, I, you know, how many of you know, know this one? Yeah? No? Nobody? How many of you are out there? Yeah. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> you know? you got to talk to the, the artist formerly known as Prince here in the city. Yeah? Okay. There's a couple of different ways we could be you know, doing our conflict resolution. But when we get down to combat, um, that's the part of the game, really, right? The biggest part is that the combat starts to drag, you know, especially as we start to get up, more powers, more levels. You know, how can we make that a faster process, right? There's a couple of, you know, really simple things we can do, like, you know, having your players roll there to hit and their damage dice at the same time. You know, that's the simplest one, right? It saves us the extra 15 seconds, but multiply that out. We've got a minute. We do a couple of rounds. Suddenly we're saving ourselves about 10 minutes out of the whole combat, probably. Um, the other one you can do is, you know, you basically you, you penalize your players a little bit. It's more of the stick than the carrot. You say, hey, you guys need to know what it is that you're, you're rolling out. We don't need to have a conversation about it. I'm going to trust that you know what it is. But if you don't know what your spell does or you don't know what your particular attack does, then it's whatever you just did. And and that's what it is this time. And maybe it'll be different next session, or maybe it'll be different next round. But this round, you roll whatever I've you know we've decided. And and that tends to make I've noticed with players, right, they like to have their stuff be as effective as possible. So they're kinda like, oh no no, I, I won't ask you about that again. Let me quickly <laughs> That's right, I do two D six plus my strength and a half on my charge, not not, not uh, just 2d6, my bad. Um, so you put the onus on the players. There's six of them or four of them. or There's more of them than there are of you. And especially in my case, they're usually combined brighter than me. So, you know, let them spend the neurons to get things going. Um, the other thing that I really like to do is because with different games, you will end up with people who decide, hey, I want to act. I'm going to hold my action. Now, before I want to throw my shoe at those guys, because really what they're saying is, I'm going to sit here and wait, and then at the most opportune moment, I will spring into combat. Like, okay, fine, right? You're going to hold your action, and you're going to try and be, you're going to try and preempt my my scenic moment, or my, you know, you're going to try and preempt whatever the the climactic moment we're going to have here. 
You want to, or you're going to try and interrupt my monologue? Oh, that's the other deal. We've, I'm trying. You know, we're we're not just playing, right? We're not just playing a gauntlet, right? Elf shot the food. That's not. I can sit and play Elf shot the food all day. I, didn't, you know, this is a social fun story time, right? So let the bad, you know, you gotta, you gotta set it up with players. Like, look, you're going to get your licks in, but let the guy talk on occasion or let the bad guy do whatever it is he's going to do. I will not, you know, make sure there's a, a social contract on that point to where they understand, look, you're going to get your shots in this guy. You're going to hit him in the face repeatedly, probably, um, you know, whether or not he gets away, that depends on how sneaky you, you can be, right? I mean, how many of us have actually managed to get the bad guy away, like, once at least? <laughs> once, maybe, yeah. I get once. I can know I can have once at least. And then usually they're like, oh, no, I've got that dimensional anchor down now. You, you're not pulling that shit on me again. Um, and uh, then, then you use the mislead early on, right? Because that one leaves the, the illusionary guy that, that, you know, sits there and still does stuff. Is that like, I will keep attacking you, animatronic bad man. <laughs> um, and then they flee. Um, but so you, you set that social contract as well so that they can, um, so the players know, okay, I'm not going to interrupt. Because, again, interrupting the jam while he's getting into it, too, is going to kill some of your time. As you're like, wait, 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 hold on. It's going to break your flow. It's going to make it so you're, you're not... You know, you're not focused back into running that combat better. So if you've got your social contract, you've got them writing, you know, no, very familiar with what they're doing, right? Their particular actions. I am not going to memorize everything that your character can do because there's five of you, um, and you you have them kind of combining dice rolls at one time. There you can start to shave off a bit of time. Um, the other thing I like to do is when I initially have people roll for initiative. I keep a deck of cards with me, just a regular set of playing cards. And I'll have, I, I usually, you know, I keep the spades, you know, I have them take the hearts kind of thing. And so what we do is we roll. And I have the, you know, as everybody gets it, I'll say, okay, who's got the highest? And then I give them the ace. And then, I, and then we just kind of cycle down to get everybody. And then we start to use those cards for initiative. And the way that works is then when somebody says, I want to hold my action, they push their card forward. And when they, you know, when they decide then to act, we then rotate cards wherever they get fit back into the routine. I don't have to worry about rolls. I don't have to worry about, you know, rejiggering where everybody is. Then I can just go back to cycling through my set of cards here, right? And the people who have their cards go when they, when they get their cards. That's one of the, the better ones that I like. It tends to really smooth out that particular element of a, of a combat. And then the last point that I would have that I think, like those are like mechanically, how can we pick up some time, right? I think, and then personally, what I like is I really enjoy descriptive, evocative combats. So the other thing that I would say, if you're going to do to try and improve your combats at the table is play video games, Right. Or, or as I used to do, at least in college when I was, you know, broke, go and watch them play video games, you know, at the student union. Um, you know, watch them playing Tekken, watch them playing Soul Calibur, you know, watch a couple of the videos because it really, 
improves the the mood and, and the aesthetic for your game when you can, you know, instead of just saying, okay, you attack and, uh, which, okay, 17, you hit for 12 damage. And, and then, so he may say that, and then you be like, okay, your turn. No, no, no. Don't miss that opportunity. Take that and be like, okay, so you come in with your great club and, uh, you know, he takes a swipe at you, but you duck down and uh, come back up, you know, and, and give him the uppercut with your great club as he's knocked back and spun slightly. You see his face bleeding from the nose. That's the other thing you sometimes need to overcome with your players at the table is making sure they understand that just because you have described that someone's arrow bounced off their pauldron, right, um, you know, it is all saying, okay, Okay, uh, he shoots the arrow and it bounces off your pauldron. Um, you take five points of damage. And they look at me, but he bounced off my pauldron. It's like, look, I'm going to describe things for you guys. And if I actually stuck you full of, you know, pincushion arrows, you know, we would, you'd get hit twice and you'd be done, right? Nobody, very rarely in history do they have people who are like, and he was stabbed 17 times and continued on to beat five other men. Like, <laughs> that doesn't happen, right? You know, in Braveheart, there's a dude who loses his hand, right? And then at the end of the battle, he's like, and I still fucked them all up, kind of thing. No, that, that's, that's occasion. But that's what we want in the movies, right? We want to be able to describe to that guy, yeah, that guy had his hand totally crushed and just kept rolling with it. So make sure they've also got part of that social contract that you can come back and say, I'm going to describe things. And you may take a, an arrow off the top of the helmet, or it might be a glancing blow, or you may, like, you know... There are going to be minor things that you might not otherwise associate with some kind of injury, but we're going to fall back to that that vague paragraph, you know, long ago and far away in the first edition DMG that says, "No human being can take as much punishment as a warhorse." So, you know, your hit points are the combined sum of, you know, physical endurance and luck and skill, and you know, you took a you take a shot over the arm. So you're going to end up with a bad welt that just barely goes over your bracer kind of thing from, from the shot, you know, from the sword going over your, your hilt and across your, your bracer. It's, it's reclaiming that part of the narrative and instead of going straight to the mechanics, because let's face it, when we get heavy duty into our games, right, level 10, guys are like, I've got four attacks. Well, not a 10, but, you know, and they start to get up there and I've got... I've got three, or I've got two, and you know, and he's got a spell, and I've got a monster who's got a claw, claw bite, and a tail swipe. We start to, we start to pull back for that because we're running out of time. And if we can get ten percent back, then we can put ten percent back in on fun story or fun descriptive elements that, you know, that really make for a, a more enjoyable, an enjoyable game. And you can't, you can't leave spellcasters out of it. Either right, you need to you gotta you gotta throw in for them as well. You know elements. I, what I like to do is again, I'm I'm one of the six Ars Magica players in the world, and um, you know I'm not one of the secret masters. Those are hidden, scattered across the world. Um, as I understand it, several may actually be in Australia. Um, <laughs> but one element I really like from Ars Magica is that every wizard has a sigil, right? They have a magical signature to their magic that when you see them cast a spell, it is all, it, it will have this signature, right? So I like to ask the magical players in the game. I'm like, okay, you're a god of sun and 
uh, and strength, right? That's your God's powers. So how, when you manifest your spells, what's going on? And so then you can throw a little bit of that. Does, you know, does the cleric, does the cleric of, uh, uh, what was one? So you've got a cleric of like death and, and, or no, in Midgard, there's a, there's a goddess of murder and lust, right? So, you know, I like when, when one of those clerics, cast their spells, I have their hair, like it's kind of blown up in the wind, but there's like a, a black and white strobe light kind of going on, their eyes get all bright white, kind of like the, uh, kind of like uh, Galadriel in, in thank you, well, I'm trying to remember, it's Two Towers, I think no, no it's, it's, a, fellowship. it's a fellowship, okay, thank you see, they're going to come for my nerd card here in a minute VIP uh, badge, this is see this is this is Trixie. This is from medieval times. It was my lanyard at medieval times, and so I didn't have to worry about. It. I just made sure I packed it, and I was I was like, you know what? I'll just leave that in there. Those are like those are like. I haven't seen anybody else with that. That's like the guy. That's like the guys who go to concerts wearing their own homemade security T-shirts. So, but you ask your casters, like, what is your sigil? What is your magical signature to what you do, right? When they fire magic missiles, are they actually like a bird that, you know, a hawk that flies in and explodes in a magical burst of feathers? You know, are there fireballs? Is there the, the scent of, of lavender uh, or sulfur after they fire their fireball, Right. Add these elements into the game because not only that, you could then start to use those from your own side. When they show up after the battle, you know, and there's maybe a couple of tiny light blue feathers on a couple of the killed bandits that when they pick up, you know, break away into into sparkles, they'll be like, oh, we know that Ragnar, the, you know, the evoker was here. That is his sigil kind of thing. You can work those elements that are part of combat back into your your storyline and again then your players are like oh oh we need to look for that wait is there the scent of of saltpeter and sulfur only flambeau the terrible has fireballs that smell you know saltpeter and sulfur kind of thing right um clearly i'm not thinking my clearest at at nine o'clock this morning but you know these kind of elements then they they get you more mechanical, and then they get you more story back to where we're going. Um, I I don't use a combat. Um, I don't use a combat. I guess uh, clipboard. They've got a magnetic one at Paizo that's pretty sharp. I've seen it in organized play before. Um, I've seen them in, in play. They are certainly a, a good tool. Uh, and if you like the way that rolls, I. <clears throat> Strongly recommend it. You know, I've seen a number of GMs just having that clipboard that tracks it all there totally ups their game um, because they've got their hit points and the AC and the character names and they follow it around and they move their magnetic tabs the way the cards work for me. Um, and that's the one thing that I would also say is none of this is you know surefire for everybody. You got to try a couple of these methods um, and see if they work out. Like some people, I had had one roommate at one point. And he could not for the life of it. This guy was like a Tekken wizard. He was one of those guys I would actually go and watch play Tekken to get like some monk moves or, you know, different combat moves to kind of describe later on. And he would try to run and describe a combat and it would quite literally be, okay, 
you hit and you missed. <laughs> you kill me, man. <laughs> Let's get into a little bit. Um, if you have a table where you have some of the more thespian players, um, you know, and you're willing, feel free to empower those players to describe their own attacks. Um, you know, as long as they know with license that as they describe what they're doing based on what they roll, you will then adjust and kind of riff off of them. Um, one of the best things I love to do to get people in the mood of thinking how to do that when I try and migrate a table to doing their own combat descriptions is to play a game called uh, Lunch Money or Beer Money. It's from Atlas Games. Um, I, I recommend it because I do it long before they made me a freelancer and they fired me since they no longer have a uh, Ars Magica line. So I feel safe in saying I'm not pimping them because they're paying me anymore. But the nice thing about lunch money, and the, the premise of lunch money is that you're all playing Catholic schoolgirls who uh, are trying to bully the other Catholic schoolgirls <laughs> to take their lunch money. Uh, personally, when I play, everybody's character name as we're playing is Mary something. So I'm Mary Bernadette. Uh, my uh, old roommate is Mary Jarena. You know, <laughs> I, uh, I, uh, my sister-in-law is now Mary Shannon, so she just plays herself. Um, and so the whole part of this game is you have a hand of cards, right? And you have things like kick and punch. Uh, there's a Hail Mary. There's a pipe. There's a block or a dodge. And we play um, with a little with a, a house rule to it that we call the spirit of the game foul. And it, so basically we make everybody kind of as we go. You, you have so many hit points. The cards say how many. You have like 20 hit points on your die. And as you play each card you take off so many hit points as you make an attack, and when you knock somebody out, right, you get their lunch money. So then the object is to be the last Catholic schoolgirl standing with all the lunch money. Because right? <laughs> then you will go to the commissary, and, sis and Sister Marguerite, you know, Mary Margaret, will then, you know, let you have the lunch, and the rest of the girls will be over there nursing their wounds and plotting to get you next time. But the benefit of this game is that by making sure there's that spirit of the game foul kind of thing, you don't just get to say, okay, I attack, you know, Mary Shannon with a kick for two points. No, no, that's spirit of the game foul. No, you say, I'm waiting by the water fountain as Mary Shannon comes down the hall with her binder out of biology class. And when Sister Mary Margaret's not looking, that's when I give her a sharp kick to the side of the knee for two points of damage. And... If, you know, Mary Shannon's paying attention and she's got a dodge card in her hand, maybe, she, uh, she then uh, plays and says, no, see, I knew Mary Bernadette was going to be waiting for me in the hallway after biology. And that's when I did a, uh, a big, you know, my cheerleading skills showed to the fore and I did a big jump up in the air and dodged. But... I also knew she was going to be waiting here, and I have a follow-up pipe card and hidden in my binder. As I come out of my jump, I hit Mary Bernadette in the knee, in her own knee, with a pipe. No ice skating for you, Mary Bernadette. <laughs> and, and you get them in this mode of, of thinking about, you know, being creative about their own attacks and their own defenses and getting into that. And then you start to encourage this own culture at your own table of now your combats are as much 
of a descriptive point. And it takes some time to get people out of their shell to be wanting to do more than I hit for 12 points of damage. But that's why maybe one of these nights you have a game of lunch money, right? And I always like to put a little sweetener on the pot of like, okay, tonight we'll be playing for this potion of extra healing, you know, or we'll be playing for, you know, some minor item that will slip into the game later on for that particular character. So it gives them a little other game incentive to kind of, you know, get into it, to, to not spirit of the game foul for, for lunch money. And then after we've got them doing that for a while, you know, and I kind of save that for like a session zero after we've got the characters built for something or, you know, people are out for a night. Like, you know, Jim's not going to be here tonight. Alana can't make it. It's going to be the three of us. I brought out lunch money. Who wants an extra potion? You know, kind of thing. You had a question? Well, that question was to comment. Um, because I do have a very thespian group. I, I'm one of them. We, we rotate GMs. The one person has a con- so not the person has a constant wall. Yay for the troop method. Yeah. So we'll, we'll so I just wrapped up my game and now I'm going to play the next one. Sure. Um, and what I found, I was doing Green Ronin's Song of Ice and Fire because I hate my players. Um, <laughs> Welcome to the red session. <laughs> they, actually, they, they actually defended the red wedding, so I got back at them by uh, killing one of their friends. Excellent. They didn't like that, but it made for a great drama. Um, but what I found is, when, when I was trying to lead them into describing all their own stuff, we didn't have lunch money, but, but in order to get them used to it, I let them start with describing the kill shots. Okay. First, and then I kind of built up more and more gradually let them do that. That's an excellent way to boil that frog. That's a good way to do it. And and, and also, they will think of some incredibly brutal ways to kill someone that you might not have thought of. So it it makes your job easier. Exactly. Exactly. And that, you know, the part, too. While they're busy talking, you can then be, you know, because let's face it, there's like five brains there for their tactics, and there's one brain for you for the various tactics on your side of the screen. So anytime you can steal a couple of cycles to be like, okay, that's right, I do have dominate person. Excellent. You know, almost forgot that they had the power to do a dimension door. And okay, now I can do that. Take those moments when you can to do it. Um, I, I also find that once you do a little bit more of that, as you get more comfortable with some of that descriptive and your table gets a little more com- comfortable over the description, at certain points you can, potentially depending on the game and depending on the comfort of the table, you can actually move a little bit away from a, a, a grid, like a combat battle mat. Um, not always. A lot of people like to move their mini across the table. Um, so you, you stick with that. But if you can move to that, then it frees up your play space a lot as well, which means now I'm not just limited to, you know, Jim's dining room table. We can shift the game. We can shift the venue a couple of times if we need to. That kind of flexibility means fewer missed sessions, right? Um, but, you know, everybody likes to pull out that many every so often and be like, yeah, I'm doing battle mats tonight, man. I got a big one. That's also how, you know, players will start to realize, oh, we're in for it tonight. Now it's for realsies. He's got the battle mat on. We're not just doing, we're not just doing descriptive theater of the mind combat for part of this tonight. You know, they, they still enjoy that, but when they see the battle mats out printed and for realsies, they're like, okay, you know, it's, it's not going to be too many, not going to be too many, uh, you know, wake up later on or, you know, we're not going to be, we're not going to be rescued afterwards at this one if it goes south for our storyline kind of thing. Any other questions? I mean, that's, it's a good point. Does anybody have any questions? We're about halfway for today. I mean, I, like I said, I apologize, but yes, sir. 
kind of hate to brag on my players, but I feel like my players have a flowchart for all combats where step one is to use their most powerful attack. They Nova they right out of the gate. Keep doing it, and if it doesn't, run away. Sure. <laughs> well, first, kudos, kudos to you for instilling the fear <laughs> and, and for make, and making them. But okay, so the other part that I like to do, at least for part of design, um, is to make it so. Either I know you will win the combat. Like, I, I, I know that I, running and riding for Living Greyhawk, they were the largest, and, and I say this with nothing but love in my heart for the organized play community, but they are the largest group of optimizing cheese weasels <laughs> on, on the face of this earth. Like, it, it was very clear by year eight of the campaign that the writers and the players were locked in an interminable arms race <laughs> to see who could create the more diabolical method of inflicting damage on one of the three random thuggings you would have in the course of your story. One of my favorites was like a dragon that had some kind of monster in it with an aura that any time you did damage to the monster it it expressed that damage out in its aura to anybody in the aura so the dragon breathed fire on on the monster that it had held you know pinned in its grasp and everyone who was within 30 feet took untyped you know 80 points of untyped damage from the aura right that they could not you know dr that they could not shield other that there was no way to off that was that was one of the heights of like i you know screw you and your <laughs> magical reflexes you know stone skinned heroes feasted 13th level fighters my breath weapon gets you all anyway <laughs> right but then i also saw guys who were like all right uh you know, the, there was an augmented reflexes spell that was like a immediate cast that was like plus fifteen to initiative. Click, right? Okay, so I'm going first, and I cast time stop, and and we go, and uh, here's a telekinesis up. So, and there's a uh, you know, and they fire off like four spells, and then be like, and my turn's over, and they'd be like, right, on to the next encounter. <laughs> But that's it's an important lesson that I took from Ars Magica that I'd also pass back to you guys. It's a little bit of an, a role-playing jujitsu. When you have the guy who comes to your table, and he is like, I have made the great sword master on a normal attack. I've combined it with Psychic Warrior, and now on a normal attack, I do a hojillion points of damage. Boom. That guy is telling you. Maybe he doesn't realize he's telling you. She doesn't realize she's telling you. Whoever, the chair is not telling you that, that they love combat. They're telling you, I really don't want combat to be where you challenge me. Right? They're saying, combat's going to be really easy for me because I have made everything so that I just stomp combats in the face. Right? So that guy's saying, that player's saying, I want to be challenged by other things. I want to be challenged socially. I want to be challenged politically. I want to be investigative. Now, they may not realize they've just told you this, and you may 
after you have tried to respond to this message, have to talk and make sure. And certainly, everybody, let's say, let's face it, every once in a while, we like to find the open stretch of road and put the foot down, right? It's fun. It's fun to go put that, you know, to hit the great sword in the face repeatedly. Um, so certainly don't ignore it, right? You've got to feed that every once in a while. But that kind of, that kind of shifting to that point says, I don't want that to be my challenge, you know? So, so jujitsu, right? So then put them into more of the social, put them into a few of the political aspects, you know, put them into the murder mystery, um, you know, and they come back, they're like, I never get to hit anything. And you're like, but anytime I would ever give you anything to hit, you'd just, we'd be done here in like 15 minutes. And I thought we were going to have a game kind of thing. And then they'd be, well, yeah, but I still want to hit things in the face. Oh, okay. Now I understand because before what your character told me was something totally different and they might go, oh, Oh, okay. I mean, that's not to say that it's not great to optimize it out, but make sure that there's a conversation there as to what element, especially if they come to, especially, that's the red flag, when they come to you hyper-optimized for something, right? How much of it do they then actually want that to be a game, or how much of that do they want you to just kind of be like, and you totally crush them in combat, and now we continue investigating. Um, any other questions going in here? All right, let's get the jump in the back. Uh, if your players decide to fight each other, <laughs> popcorn, scotch, <laughs> <laughs> do my job for me. Yeah. <laughs> you, you lose all the control as the DM. Um, in general, no, you don't. Why? Okay. Would you try and stay involved still through the environment or NPCs? Of course. Yes. Man, you are the okay. You are also, you know, you are as much here to play a game and have as much fun too. They're not taking you out of the out of the control. Don't feel. I would say personally, don't feel that way. You still have the whole rest of the world, man. Right? Everything else on that globe that is not them is you. So, is this when the alarms go off? Right? Is this when you know? Is this when that purple worm bursts through the floor that their villain? You know, is that when the Zorn, you know, shock troops came through the walls for their delicious, delicious armor? Because nothing says tasty like that adamantine greatsword, baby. Yeah. <laughs> Side note: one of my favorite like ambush attempts was to cast a program. I, no, it wasn't. I think it was the the complex illusion spell. But I made a black pudding look like an elder Zorn. And black puddings have the exact inverse weapon vulnerabilities of Zorn. Like Zorn, you just want to hit with lightning, and you just want to hit with like edged weapons kind of thing. Whereas like black puddings don't want to be hit with those. Or no, it was the other way around. It was like Zorns don't want to be hit with edged weapons. So it was the other way around, basically, so that if they came and they attacked the horrible big black or horrible Zorn with what you should use to hit a Zorn, they were gonna they were gonna you know do nothing to the black pudding. It would then be like, mm, I'm a mindless black thing that likes. <laughs> so don't. But but what I'm saying is jujitsu that moment, right? If they're gonna turn on each other, it, it, after the whole thing, you're gonna want to sit down and ask them. All right, look, man. Why are we turning on each other here? Like, sometimes that's legitimate, right? We're having a discussion, they get into it. Um, 
you know, we did one where we were playing a game of adventures and we're in a cloud city and we have the option of crashing the cloud city and obliterating some poor town of 5,000 people or allowing this floating, you know, death machine to continue lobbing enormous rocks, you know, uh, orbital death style on the rest of the, of the valley. And we got into a very hard and fast, you know, discussion about do we sacrifice this town of 5,000 or do we find another way sometime later to destroy this, this town? And it almost came to those blows. Um, but the GM then was like, and then the giants burst in, you know, another troop of them. And that broke the tension, right, for that moment. We then stopped our very aggressive discussion was not quite at initiative yet because in those days if you did that in organized play they're like and I'll take your character and yours and you are now NPCs and nobody wanted that so I would say pay attention to that if you can then interrupt and get into it um, put something else into it change the environment otherwise give them a few moments let them put a couple licks into each other because let's face it they want to put a couple licks into each other but you know once they've done that Take, take, take back the scene in that sense and get going with it. If you have to contrive that in a certain way, then do it. Is there a Zorn diviner who has, you know, seen that they will come and screw up his plans? That's why the random group of Zorns attack through the walls. Like, if you've got to springboard off of it for some reason, then do that. And it, it's tougher, but I would say give them a little chance to knock each other a little bit, because they, they clearly want that. But, you know... Use your environment. Give them a second. While they take that second, then take, you know, assess the environment, the situation, and, and kind of say, okay, how can I then inject back into that scenario to, uh, to actually, I'll bring these over to you where I have it, so I know to come over. If you get the chance, that man is uh, Todd Gudula, who uh, does the Real Steel uh, column on Cobalt Press. He's an actual bladesmith. And makes some fantastic weapons. So he's going to. done here. Giving a whole thing on making actual weapons. So um, I'm going to get her and then I'll come to you. Okay, so I'm going to play from a player perspective. Yes. I tend to, in combat, be interested in combat about half the time, and sure. often I'm more interested in taking particular Taking. Sure. And so, like, disruptive things, like, I want to silence the guy. So basically, I just, I don't care about the game. Of course. So I feel like we struggle sometimes with, like, finding the balance of, like, you know, if you're a fighter there and you can take multiple attacks, but then someone just trying to do something, it's like, um, trying to find the best, like how many skill checks can really do around and usually I'm limited to, to one and my action feels very tiny compared to uh, sure. what uh, sure. so part of that is going to be like you're saying cast silence or something part of that's going to be your sigil right or if you can do a spell description right instead of I just cast silence you, know, you say I cast silence and suddenly it's as if everything becomes very distant and then there's a tiny pop and now, you know, kind of thing, right? So now the bad guy's in it. But if you're doing skill checks and those kinds of things, um, those are moments. Uh, there are a couple of options out there I've seen. If we're talking, say, Pathfinder-ish, 
kind of thing. Then there are a couple of things called like skill tricks that are a couple of third parties. They're not really overpowered. I mean, there are options where it's like, yes, I could have another plus one to make me like plus 27 to this. Or I spend my skill point and get a skill trick. If that's something you like to do. Then the, I would strongly say have then the discussion with the GM that says, look, I like doing these things. Is there a way I can parlay into my character you know, some of these, these trick type things? Um, maybe I take a feat that says I am an adept uh, you know, sleight of hand. And so I can do multiple you know, sleight of hand checks to snag their spell component pouches in the course of combat. Or I can do not only the tumble, you know, some of mine become move actions. And I can do the same number maybe of skill checks of a particular skill as I can do with attacks for my base attack bonus, right? So that you're scaling with what you've already got in the system, but not, you know, not overwhelmingly kind of thing. Um, I would say that's, if that's, you know, that's how you like to roll with your character, man, you got to make sure you have that conversation. It's the communication on that part. But it, it, it too, if you can bring them, right, I always find, one thing I learned in the military, I always had a, if you have a ticket, sir, before you, you head out, if you, no, all right, no ticket, that's cool. Um, if, uh, if you can, you know, if you can come to them with a solution ahead of time, I always find it's a lot easier for them to be like, yeah, I don't have to think about it. That's a we'll roll with that for at least a session. Let's see how it goes. And and, and usually if I qualify it with that kind of thing, then then they're like, all right, we'll try it for this. And if it doesn't work, then we'll adjust. But the fact that you're willing to come with that and have the discussion and that, then you can try and do a couple things. Um, and, and that that would be where I would start and say, look, I just want to be able to do it for you know these four skills that I am because I'm level four, and so for these ones I can treat. In this fashion. And then that gives you a way to kind of get into it a little bit more, right? You're not just going to be lumpy metal thing plus one to the face all day long. This thing gets boring to do lumpy metal thing plus one all the time. What do you got, James? Uh, so I've been uh, with the same group of people for, you know, uh, eight years. And I'm running out of ideas for cool encounters, and I'm just wondering, like, where should I go for to get great ideas for something fresh, sure. something that's going to be interesting for me to run, and for them that's not going to be like, oh, look, we're in a building that's falling apart again, and yeah. we're, you know, sure. that kind of thing. Um, and, well, again, kudos. Eight years. That's <laughs> awesome. Uh, yeah, keeping a table together that long is fantastic. Um there is a book of uh, from Sneak Attack, Sneak Attack Press, Sneak Attack Press. It's a guy who there's a, there's a book from Sneak Attack Press. I want to say um, of non traditional encounters that are like okay, um, you know here's here's a variety of unusual encounter setups. For myself, I like to change the focus. And say, okay, like I said, I know you're going to punch them in the face. I know you will win combat-wise. But now it is, can you put out the fire on the tents before, you know, X rounds have occurred? Yes, the place is on fire, but the focus of the battle is not the battle per se. It is completing an objective before the battle completes, you know, or before a certain condition is hit. Um, I did another one where... uh, 
for this was an organized play special. It's one thing I really loved about early organized play because it was all volunteer. Nobody gave a damn what we wrote, so we got to cr- try some of the craziest stuff. Um, I had another one where it was on like a battlefield scene, right? So we had a, I had like a pair of trenches, and the players were there, and they're supposed to be covering the retreat. And so I had every round, or I had like three waves of uh, like 30 fleeing soldiers, right? So on each player's turn, they took their normal action against the like half dragon ogres that had you know landed on the field to attack. But then they also had to run six of these NPC guys across the battle mat. And I had, there were mine, like there were alchemical mines, and the half dragon ogres were like, you are delicious with ketchup, right? And so they're trying to save as many of those NPCs as they could, so they had to focus not only on how they got those NPCs across the battlefield, but how they dealt with the, the other guys. So by adding in their own minigame that they are, they are in charge of, man, I am not running 30 NPCs uh, to run across that field. There are six of you. You will each get five. And, you know, let's see who gets the most across the field. Good luck. You know, now they're in it against each other for those things. So I would say finding places where the focus of the combat is not hitting things in the face is is the way to kind of jujitsu into that, especially. Um, but if you're at eight years into this, I mean, is it the same game? No, no, we've changed. Okay. Uh, You've changed a couple, but now you still you don't want to do the greatest hits of right, exactly. You know, um, <clears throat> yeah, I don't want to do the fake version of what we did in fourth. Exactly, exactly. Then I would say that sneak attack press. I think it's alternate encounters cool. has a lot of variant um, kinds of things that you can do with situations. I do. I, I may be in a minority in this, but I find that a, a, an extended skill challenge where if I've gotten the table primed to describe their combat actions, I can usually then, it's a short jump to getting them to describe kind of the montage extended skill check actions to doing things. So I can drift more into um, extended skill checks of, you know, how we hold the airship together as it's coming in for a crash kind of thing. And now suddenly it's not them fighting against a bunch of air- goblins, right, who are boarding as the ship is crashing. It's them just fighting to hold this piece of junk together before they crash. And how well they hold it together is how many supplies they have or how many of the rest of the crew they have alive when they do crash kind of thing. Um, like, like I said, shift your focus from punching to the other. Um, any other questions? Yes, sir. Sure. Sure. Um, for myself, when I want to make the environment more um, more front and center, I do go battle mat, right? Because now we're out of the ordinary. Theater of the mind with a change of, of environment like that is really tough unless I want to like put a table tent in front of me that just, you know, constantly says, you're on fire, right? Or, you know, freezing water all the time, you know? 
I can't fill my dining room to the knees with icy cold water, my wife would complain. So, so, so you know, in those cases, then we have to, I have to lay out the blue battle mat, right, kind of thing to get into that. To So what I would say is start with a small one or two kind of thing. They're going to fight this battle up to their knees in water, and that's going to make it rough terrain where every step is two steps. That's something they need to remember, right, because they control their movement. And then you say, okay, all fire damage is halved, right? So I've got two environments there. Now suddenly their environment's suddenly shifted. And, you know, if they've got Flambeau, you know, the Burninator, he's now paying attention to this. It's a little harder now. If they've got a flame sword, these things are kind of paying attention. You know, you've shifted it. Ordinarily, they would have no trouble with six orcs, but these are ice orcs. And they can't just, you know, Flambeau the Burninator cannot just fireball his way through this encounter and and it takes longer. But they, you know, they are ice works, so they skate across the environment. You make it so then the bad guy doesn't even pay attention to that environment. It becomes just for them kind of thing to focus on that one. Does that does that help? Yeah, because um, usually I'm looking at like equal opportunity environment. I don't really consider the environment that the bad guy just is, is you know, No man, cheat. Or- Cheat. There's one of you, six of them. <laughs> well, think about it this way. A lot of times when, when the players are fighting, they're on the bad guy's home turf. Exactly. And naturally, he's yeah. going to have the advantage I don't, it's yeah. his turf. I don't make my house, you know. <laughs> I, I didn't set up shop at, I, I don't know, I, on the bridge over the, the canal because because this was a tough place for me to fight people if I'm the troll under the bridge. I did this because it's tighter quarters and I can knock you into the water, you know, or I can, you know, I've got plenty of trees over here that I can turn into logs that I can throw at you like boulders. I did this because it's good for me to set up shop here, you know, not because six dudes who can't pay me my protection money (laughs) keep thinking that they can come over and cross my bridge whenever they want. No. No, set it up, and it's okay to unbalance it. I'm not saying that every fight you should be like, screw you, players. <laughs> I'm saying they have six different you know, characters' worth of tactics. Invariably, unless you are just like a mentat, right, you're running one or two varieties of monsters. You've only got so many javelins and longswords, right? You've only got so many you know, shocking lizard things and claw-claw bite. It, it adjusts your environment to put a little advantage one way or the other. But also on that same token, that is their place, right? Not every monster should be like, I'm going to fight until you horribly crush my skull. You know, be willing to be like, okay, okay, I quit. You know, here's some of the treasure. Give it a go. Thanks for coming. You too. Or over me. I'll never see another player again. <laughs> that was my one chance to make a troop, and it just passed. So, um, I thought someone... Did you have a question? Yes, sir. My question is about epic one-on-one fights. Hero versus ah. villains. It's a great chance to be very evocative and flavorful because you're only running one NPC, there's only one hero. Yes. What do you do with the rest of the party? Do they cheer? Do they get involved? Are they invested? How can I get them invested? Okay. Um, so... Part of this that I like to do 
is to, you know, obviously if you've got one of these scenes, you've probably been planning it for a while, right? This isn't just like, hey, it's Thursday night. What I thought we'd do is James is going to, you know, do a one-off duel with uh, Alana, you know, or against someone. One thing you can do that I've liked is to let one of the other players play the bad guy, right? If I've got that, I've at least got two. It depends on the size of your table, right? Um, How big is your table? For instance, about five people. Okay, so you've got your one duelist, right? Um, and then you've got your so you've got your player duelist. You've got somebody you can say who is the bad guy duelist as well, kind of thing. Um, then you've got somebody who should probably be playing uh, the, that character second if you kind of follow the traditional forms or whatever. That may adjust, but I like to have a backup guy, right? There's somebody who's supposed to be able to come and take your your dead duelist home to their family, right? That's, you know, that's that's kind of the tradition if you go back to medieval stabbing people because you bit your thumb at me kind of thing. You know, Romeo and Juliet and Tybalt and whatnot. So they've, the party's going to have somebody who's playing the second and then the other bad guys are going to have a second and maybe you can put that into a second right if one of the other players plays a second is to then give those secondary players elements that they are permitted to do from the side right they're allowed to cast one effect on them because of the traditions i mean you have to you you're you're creating a scene here yes the focus is on those ones and two you know, those two primary players but you've got to create those elements, like you said. Otherwise, you have people who are like, why did I even show up tonight? You know, I didn't come for the James and Alana show. Um, I came for us all to play and have a good time. So by putting in those secondary elements there, bounce out those elements. And while they're doing that, um, maybe the, the fifth guy is working the crowd for something. Or give a, a secondary kind of element that's going on with that. So you can say, as they're dueling back and forth, the blades flash. You know, you are, you know, you are trying to, you know, your job was to sneak up to, you know, the judge behind and give him the, you know, the Mickey of this dust that will make him unable to see when he finally, you know, pulls his sneaky trick and, and, you know, and cheats to beat the guy he clearly shouldn't be able to beat kind of thing or, you know, makes it so that he will be able to fake his own death. And you'll be able to escape without, you know, dying. But there's a secondary element. You need to put a secondary goal in there so that your table is filled out with goals, right? So with the secondary goals filled out. And then it becomes, those are the moments where I am totally GMing standing up, right? Because I cannot describe the action here and some of the action there. Hopefully I've got them doing some of that themselves. But then to cut over and be him as he creeps through. I end up making GMing a very, like, mobile Especially when I'm getting into heavier description, I end up standing a bit more, moving around a bit more. Um, it, it, it just, especially in a situation like that, you're going to have to be very active. That's a complex. That's a complex one, um, but those can be also very rewarding, right? Because you've built up that scene of this. There's a big to do here because it's clearly a, a big focus. Um, uh, otherwise, you, you, I would say. You can do them on a smaller scale, right, where it's not so much, but you have to make them uh, a little more abstracted, a little, a, a little quicker in that sense. Uh, clearly, you can't do that against the blind swordsman that meets on the road and doesn't let you pass his shrine, um, you know, without facing him in, in a single, you know, Aitsu or whatever that drawing 
I can never say the, the word for it, but the, you know, the draw, attack, combat kind of thing.